The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. In the second last week of June, TJ and I took a trip out to the desert sands of New Mexico for the Spaceport America Cup 2019. We got to talk to student participants, event organizers, and a whole lot of really cool engineers about their rockets. So TJ, let's get started. First of all, for people that might not know, what is the Spaceport America Cup? The Spaceport America Cup is a competition for college students to design and build their own sounding rockets. So these are rockets that are unguided and they're designed to go up to 10 or 30,000 feet. And this takes place at Spaceport America, which is in New Mexico. It's actually co-located in the same airspace as White Sands Missile Range. And so they have a zero to unlimited uh, clearance for the FAA, which allows them to launch these rockets at high altitudes. Yeah. And these competitions in particular are the intercollegiate Rocket Engineering Competition, or IREC, and that's a competition for the students competing and building their sounding rockets and competing to hit a specific target altitude. And then there's also a second competition that takes place here, the Space Dynamics Lab Payload Challenge. So all of these rockets are required to carry at least 8.8 pounds of payload mass in the nose, and some of these student teams elect to have that mass actually do something. And for those teams, there's a whole competition. It could be either an engineering payload where the technology is either being proven or doing something interesting, or a science payload where some research or scientific effort is being done. Exactly. And what's really interesting about the competition is that for many schools, this is the first time that they're going to be launching their rockets. So you have schools coming from Australia and Brazil. Uh, Canada has several teams, and they're all coming to the United States and New Mexico for the opportunity to launch their rockets. Now, some schools with more robust programs who might be living near desert areas, especially California schools actually have it easy. They can go out to Mojave and, and test launch their rockets. But, you know, a school like Yale on the East Coast is not going to have uh, a safe place to launch their rocket before the competition. So this is the first spot that they'll be launching from. Yeah, and that's one of the cool things about Spaceport America as a venue to host this competition. It's an actual uh, place with the infrastructure and everything set up to be a safe place to do this sort of engineering. Uh, We actually went to the Spaceport America Cup in 2018, which was the second one. Uh, We came back for the third Spaceport America Cup this year. And a few things have changed since then. And we asked the Spaceport America CEO, Dan Hicks, and the Experimental Sounding Rocket Association President, Matt Ellengold, about changes from last year to this year. There's some minor infrastructure changes from from last year. As we go forward, this year I was very fortunate with the state legislature to actually get some capital outlay money. And a part of that was devoted to the vertical launch area. So as soon as this competition is over, we're going to get power 
uh, out to the launch control area instead of operating off of generators. That'll be nice. We'll actually have a better road surface going out to the vertical launch area, which will be very nice too for the students. We'll be able to make some needed utility improvements, you know, having at least a couple facilities there to, during the preparations where not have quite as many porta potties uh, out there. So those infrastructure improvements will be happening out at the vertical launch area that'll make this competition go a little bit more smoothly. And so as we look at working with Matt on sustainable growth of this competition, my role at the spaceport is to try and get ahead of, of some of the infrastructure needs to make it more convenient for just access out to the site, easier control, and even actually getting some, some shade structures at some point in the future out there where the students can operate at it. So there's some great um, initial changes that we made from the first cup to the second to the third. As we go forward to the fourth cup, I think you'll see a little bit much more improvements out there. Yeah, and so, and so that's what's coming. A lot of that's not, not out there yet, but it, it, it's coming. We, we look forward to one day having power out there. And Additionally, Ezra has invested we, every, every dollar that gets made by the cup, and it's not many, but every dollar that does get made gets dumped right back into the cup. And this year, those dollars went into more communications infrastructure improvements. We've, For those of you who were here last year, we have these GPS tracking backpacks with radios that allow us to maintain custody of the students all during their recovery operation, again, maintaining that culture of safety. We've doubled the number of those backpacks so we can increase the throughput on recovery operations. We have doubled the number of radios for our, our staff and volunteers to use so we have more communications out there. The better, the better we can com communicate with each other, then the easier it is for us to get out amongst the students and maintain more eyes on them and communicate what's needed back more quickly either to Ezra or to site services. In order to keep the event manageable, we put a, a little bit of a soft cap on the number of teams. Mm -hmm. So we're still holding at that just over 100 team number, which works out to between 1,000 and 1,500 a little bit. Uh, call it 12, 1,200 students on site, then you add on faculty to that, but on, on that order of magnitude. I'll, I'll have actual numbers by the end of the event, but I, I'd say based on the number of teams, and we've done, been doing this for enough years that we're trending analysis, I can tell you about the same as last year, which was about 1,200. Do you find that awareness and interest in competing is growing? Oh, with, absolutely, uh, yeah. I've, I've had to, I, this is the first year we've actually had to turn some teams away hmm. in, the, in the form of setting new guidelines on having one team per college Whereas before we allowed not in the same category, there are six categories in the in the IREC and the Intercollegiate Rocket Engineering Competition. As Dan mentioned, some of those are for commercial off-the-shelf propulsion. Some of them are for SRAD propulsion. SRAD being our own take on industry term IRAD, independent research and development dollars, student research and development projects. We wouldn't allow one school to enter multiple times in the same category, but we would allow them to enter in multiple categories. This is the first year that's not allowed, so I can tell you that with 113 teams out there, that is 113 separate colleges and universities. And then some schools that were just starting up their programs, and we, we love the amb ambition, we love the energy, but they weren't really on the, on the level of experience and organization that success in this event really requires. What we did was we connected them with their local NAR and Tripoli chapters, NAR being the National Association of Rocketry, Tripoli being another National Rocketry Association. They are the amateur experts in high-power rocketry, which is the class of rockets 
that these are. They are a lot more complicated than some of the than some of the hobby projects flown by those organizations. But the members of those organizations really are the experts in the basics of, of rocketry at this level. We hook them up with their local chapters of those organizations and encourage them to seek out good mentors, accept their mentorship, develop their programs, build up the capability at the school, and then absolutely come back to us next year or the year after whenever they feel they're ready to, to join us on this level. We welcome them with open arms. So I think my biggest takeaway from this year compared to last year has been the iterative improvements and building sustainable processes for this competition to continue to grow. So this is the third annual Spaceport America Cup. The first year was the first time Ezra could host IREC here in New Mexico when they, before they'd been launching in Green River, Utah. So they had a new environment, new space, and there's a lot of growing pains. And so when we were there in 2018 for the second Space War America Cup, it was addressing immediate needs. Things you understand to be essential, like having dedicated hospital equipment and first aid on site, and other problems that you don't really think about when you're building a competition in the desert, like traffic flow, right? You have all this open space. It's like, yeah, we'll just you know set up tents in the desert, but all the student teams are in a very compact space. And how do you get a thousand students worth of cars and rockets to get to one spot, unload in a timely fashion, right? So those are the kind of challenges the, the Space War America Cup had in year two. Year three is really working out those systems so they can be scalable. The At the press briefing, they talked a lot about new infrastructure improvements to allow more people out into the desert because again, this is a very hostile environment and supporting thousand students out in the desert safely is not an easy task. And so things like more plumbing, more shade, more electricity are coming, but they're not there yet. And so really it was the process improvements. And Phil, I think you will agree that all of the events handling was very smooth, right? People were becoming to have experts with volunteers Local volunteers had done it for a second or third time. They're more experienced. And so it's all about, you know, not shooting to double the size of competition, but keep it the same scope, but really nail down the essentials so that next year or the year after you can continue to grow and not have any unsafe situations due to that rapid growth. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, that narrowing the focus, getting more streamlined and making sure it can scale. And one of the things that I thought was interesting that was a change from last year is that it was actually a structural change to the competition where this year there were something around 125, 130 teams that were there to compete. Last year, they allowed every school to bring as many rockets as they wanted. This year, it was one rocket per school. So the number of participating teams didn't change very much from last year, but the number of individual uh, and independent universities that came uh, was growing. So I thought that was really interesting. And it shows kind of that narrowing of focus. It's definitely very interesting because especially for schools that have established rocketry programs, they may produce two, three plus rockets per year. So they might have a team that's uh, an introductory rocket. So they're going to be using a commercial off-the-shelf motor it may be uh, reserved for freshmen or new members only. 
then there'll be a team that might be doing its own hybrid or a custom cast solid motor. And then some schools will be pushing the boundaries and going with research rockets designed to go farther than 30,000 feet. Uh, maybe they'll use bipropellant liquid engines, right? So those schools have a ton of interested people. Along with that is a ton of outside funding. And they have no problem producing two, three plus rockets every year for a competition. On the flip side, you have schools that have a program that might have started less than 12 months before the competition, right? If people who are interested in the idea and through sheer hard work and a little bit of luck, were able to cobble together a rocket for the competition. And, and there, that dichotomy uh, really kind of got leveled out, in my opinion, with this new rule change where, you know, now a school, no matter what that school is doing at the time, has to choose, you know, what category we're going to compete in, what rocket do we think is the the best chance of success. Uh, and the main benefit of this is diversity of schools, right? Last year, we talked to a lot of teams, a lot of new teams, and we asked them for advice of uh, what would you say to students just hearing about this competition that want to start their own clubs at their own schools? And the important bit of that is that now there are more opportunities for more schools to compete. And the overall underlying factor of all of this is that the Space Maker Cup right now doesn't have the resources to provide a spot for every single university. But until then, it's trying to be as open and available to schools and different backgrounds as it can be. Um, I definitely agree with you on the point of diversifying and also sort of leveling the playing field here. And it's really cool to see the level of competition kind of grow and change over time. And speaking of that, I actually had the opportunity during the press conference to ask Ezra's president, Matt Ellengold, what he thought about student rockets going past the von Karman line, which is the agreed upon boundary of space. And uh, at this time last year, no completely student-built rocket had passed that altitude of around 100 kilometers up. So as recently as this past May, uh, USC launched a rocket and they claimed it passed the Carmen line. And I asked Matt Allen Gold about this, if he thought this would be the future of the competition or more common. And what he said was pretty interesting. Do you anticipate growth in terms of different classes and different types of competition beyond the payload challenge? So and on, on behalf of Ezra, I'll, I'll provide our, our official tagline since I, I'll say I think we're in a position to do that, which is um, they may have broken the Carmen line. They may not have. There will always be an asterisk on that flight, so I, I think that I think that particular record and milestone is still up for grabs for anyone who can provide a more definitive data set, and that is in no way demeaning the accomplishment of that team. They, they've done an incredible amount of work. It's taken them a lot of years to get here. They went very, very high. How high? I, I can't tell you from, from, the, from the data set and analysis that they provided, there's a, there's a fair margin on that, and that's engineering. We're, we're very, very emphatic in talking about this event and saying it is more than just a rocket launch. It is an engineering competition. 
I would ne I would never be able to present to my manager the the kind of data and analysis that was provided on that project and be told, yay, verily, you passed the CLIN, you passed the contract line item that said build me a rocket that carries X payload pounds to space. It would never work. Can't confirm it. So I think to, to whoever can put together a a INS package with a with a GPS blended with an accelerometer, so you get a blended GNS, uh, GPS INS solution. Provide that. There are additional data sources that, that you could go after. Pro provide a much more robust, much more verifiable, and verifiable by a third party, mind you, data set. And again, this is this is not against the students. This is just if you're if you're going to claim records, there there's a way to go about it so that you can do it without a, without an asterisk, and there will always be an asterisk on that. Now, to actually answer your question about now now that students are actually going that high and we have to provide nuanced answers to questions like that what what is the next step in competition this competition will always exist in the way that it does now the 10,000 or 30,000 feet because at that scale you run into not all but most of the almost all of the problems that you would in building a much larger project. So this is a great, think of this as the, as the farm team, the junior, junior varsity or, or varsity for leading, leading to the pros kind of work. There's a lot of, a lot of engineering that could be done at this level. These are very real vehicles, irregardless of altitude. That doesn't mean that there aren't still goals to be chased. Some, someone can still get a more verifiable data set on the Von Karman line. Someone can go higher than the Von Karman line. Someone can go higher than that. There are ex uh, marks on acceleration, on interesting things done with payload. There, and anything can be, can be a record or a first. Think of the Guinness Book of World Records that anything, is, is that a record? Has anyone done it before? So there are all manner of things in rocket science and engineering that can be the next set of records. We, we've actually had some conversations this year and we'll, we'll continue to think about how in the future, how do we set up a sort of non-biased third party organization to start keeping track of all the great achievements that students are making, like, like that launch up on the order of the Mancarman line so that there can be a, a separate bookkeeping of what are all the amazing things that students have done in all forms of records. What I think is most interesting about those comments is this idea of more formal institutions to support more ambitious student-led rocketry and more amateur rocketry. When he's talking about having a official body to regulate and uh, confirm these kind of rocketry records. That's something that's really exciting. The last time we went to Spaceport America, we were talking about the history of sounding rockets and how in the early days of rocketry, uh, hundreds of sounding rockets were launched every year. They were a practical tool used by industry uh, for weather forecasting, for atmospheric measurements, atmospheric science. And once we developed orbital rockets and satellites, a lot of that sensing moved above the atmosphere and the market and the industry of sounding rockets kind of went away. And so now you are left with very expensive, large scale rockets for governments and a very small pool of research rockets done by NASA and other organizations. And so it's really exciting to see the technology and ambition of amateurs really pick up over the past 
several years. And the fact that the amateur rocketry uh, community is able to support more formal institutions to support these record-breaking attempts is really exciting. So let's talk about the rockets. TJ, what were were a couple of the most memorable student projects that you saw there? This year, we made a dedicated push to go to the podium sessions uh, presented at the competition. So on conference day, every team has to bring their rocket hardware and set up a table. They have a poster presentation. They're judged uh, two ways. There's a competition judge looking uh, at the technical achievements of their rocket and their vehicle, looking at their designs, their simulations, uh, and that's done at their booth. And there's also a safety check, and that's a physical hardware check. One, it's a a physical test. You know, they actually grab and wiggle the fin of the rocket to make sure that it's structurally sound. But it's also validating that the team has followed all the safety procedures. The second part of this uh, day are these podium sessions where teams can apply to present what they consider to be novel uh, technology and engineering that they did over the course of the year for their project. And so the result of that is you get these really interesting, you know, kind of mini skunk works projects that when you would come to the competition and look, it's like, oh, it's just a bunch of rockets. They're all roughly the same. They might change in proportions. But if you unless you're going to every single booth and asking the team well, like what sets you apart, you're not going to be able to find these kind of technical gems. And so podium sessions are a way to bring that out immediately. So I attended two of those podium sessions. Uh, One was with the Florida uh, Institute of Technology, and they were working on a ramjet. So their presentation was really interesting because it leveraged two kind of legacy applications of ramjets. One was the research NASA was doing into ramjets, And then two was Florida Tech's own history with ramjets and their own uh, past student research projects that were mainly working with subsonic ramjets. And so that team had decided to take upon itself to design a ramjet that could operate at supersonic speeds and would provide data that they could pull back into uh, ramjet simulation models. And that required two parts. One, you have to build a ramjet and instrument it. And two, you have to build a rocket capable of going to Mach 3 to provide the high initial pressures to feed this ramjet. And the team did a really great job at demonstrating not only the physics involved in a ramjet's operation, but also the engineering challenges of designing the shape, uh, dealing with the limitations of uh, computational fluid dynamics software and what's available to students, even with the research of the university, and how challenging those problems are to simulate accurately. So you guys have a very interesting experimental payload this week. It's a ramjet nose cone. Can you tell us a little bit about how it works and why you guys chose this idea? All right, well, uh, the, the, the payload itself is very simple. Uh, in essence, we kind of went with a philosophy that we didn't want any moving parts, so we don't overcomplicate the experiment or the project itself. And um, the way it works is that we have an Arduino-based environment uh, collecting pressure and temperature data within this modeled ramjet geometry nose cone. 
from there, we collect pressure temperature from oblique shocks that cause pressure changes within the, the wedges. And um, we can update uh, CFD models and databases and get a better understanding of how these geometries perform uh, in less than ideal environments that you would get in like a wind tunnel. Even though you can change densities and, and uh, humidity and stuff like that in a wind tunnel, um, there's things like vibrations in flight, um, atmospheric changes and things like that that happen spontaneously or happen gradually. And you know, it's uh, easier to record those changes with a platform like this. What are some of the challenges in designing a ramjet airfoil to go on top of a rocket? So um, some of the challenges with the ramjet were you could make it annular, which is like a, a circle, almost considered a donut, or you can make it symmetrical like we did. An annular would be less drag and potentially easier to make, but it'd be harder to instrument. It'd be almost uh, impossible to get all the instruments you needed in there. So we went with a symmetrical one, and that meant we had to figure a way to adapt it to a round shape, and all those uh, flowed into the design. Figuring out how to take just a, a solid geometry and breaking it up into parts that you can machine was another difficulty. What are some techniques you use to embed uh, thermocouples and pressure transducers inside your ramjet? Well, some were simple, like uh, the thermocouples, we can just poke them into the flow uh, enough that they don't interfere and we just use super glue, simple solutions, you know, home remedies kind of thing. Uh, but with the transducers, it was a little more, you know, involved. They came ported, uh, so we had to do, we had to tap them ourselves, put our own fittings on, and then route that tubing into the payload bay, uh, make sure everything fits because they are, are they are an unusual size. They're normally meant for pressure vessels, uh, since we're using them for a different application. And we we got to had to kind of uh, make them fit in with everything. Uh, yeah, but but for temperature, you know, that was kind of. Uh, Products that there's products that are already made for that, and we can just integrate it into our payload and, and kind of work with it from there. Can you talk a little bit about fabrication? Uh, how did you guys actually fabricate the the ramjet, and was it an iterative process or more of a just design many times, build once? Uh, well, especially with the budget constraints we had and the time constraints, it was, we spent a lot of time in design to make sure when we manufactured it, it was the one we were going to fly. So again, uh, I mentioned we started with just a solid model that we modeled and analyzed in CFD. And then we broke that up and we went to our machine shop about half a dozen times to talk with the machinists and instructors there about how to improve the design to make it easier to machine and manufacture. And then the final step was um, some of that was programmed by them in CNC. But then a, a lot of it was also done by ourselves by hand using just simple uh, mm -hmm. mills and drill presses. So in your presentation, you identified a few stretch goals or future improvements that you or a follow-up team could do. One of those was fuel injection, creating a propulsive unit. Is that something that is feasible with your design, or is that going to require another round of analysis and re-engineering? Um, I believe it's definitely possible for current design. It's definitely probably not going to be the optimal solution. Right, if you had started over and said, all right, all we're doing is going to be flowing fuel and creating thrust, you'd go through a different process. But I think what we have now is definitely possible to um, uh, add that capability. Mm -hmm. For future teams, either at your school or other schools, attempting to build ramjets, what are some words of advice you can give them? Um, I'll talk about like the physical and flow side, and then I'll hand it to David to talk about the electronic side. 
but some considerations is uh, your tolerances. Uh, you have to make sure things seal, which means very fine tolerances. Um, uh, combustion lengths has to be another thing to consider. Um, something very important for anything with an intake is unstart, uh, which is where the standing shock wave gets regurgitated out of your uh, engine. Right, that happens uh, with the SR71 before they added in the computer-controlled cone on it. Right, so with all that inside, you you do need to do a lot of heavy analysis, uh, but then you also need to just keep yourselves grounded in the fact that you're never going to get it perfect, and if you keep on designing, you're going to run out of time to build it and test it. As for electronics and data recovery or, or data collection, there's uh, I think one issue we ran into is uh, sensors, uh, primarily the uh, pressure transducers. Before you order your, your sensors and um, you start working with them, get to know the interfaces, get to know uh, how that is going to interface with your computer um, or microcontroller. Uh, uh, carefully consider your choice of microcontroller or, mi or microcomputer uh, because that can that can determine a lot of things. That can determine how many sensors you have on board, uh, how fast you can collect data, how much data you can collect, and if you want to perform any functions aside data logging, it's really it really depends on on your processing power, uh, how much power you need to have. Uh, so uh, sensors. And form factor. If it's a big, if it's a big issue, I, I guess that's that's all. That's all I got, I got to say on that. Great, thank you. Um, so your payload breathes air in uh, from the nose during flight. Is that correct? Well, more accurately, it is the nose. How does this affect the rocket's performance um, or stability? Um, and does that change how you designed your rocket because air is coming in through the nose? So um, it definitely does add drag over a conventional nose cone. Um, and one of the things I mentioned, unstart, right? if that had occurred in flight, it would cause a pressure buildup. When you build up the pressure on the top of your rocket, that causes it to become unstable. We've mitigated that by using a design that is uh, very unlikely to unstart when we analyze it to make sure it wouldn't unstart. And then the weight of the payload on the top means we're a very stable rocket to begin with. Right? And um, we've also test flown this on us lower powered motor to test the aerodynamics and recovery and it was also stable. So as far as the design of the rocket itself, you just ran the numbers to make sure the center of gravity, center of pressure and stuff made it stable and then factored in this extra stability margin for the nose? Or is um, the rocket just a run-of-the-mill cookie-cutter rocket? How, uh, it's kind of a bit of both. How we did it was we considered the nose cone um, we tried to find the closest like conical shape that gave us the same similar coefficient of drag in our CFD software, uh -huh. and then we simply modeled that in our com uh, computer simulations. We used Roxim Pro, and then we also used Razero 2 to confirm each simulation, and it did alter some facts. Because it's so heavy, our fins are smaller than uh, similar rockets that look like this are, yeah. because we have such a high center of gravity. How do you declare success? You analyze the data, and if the data matches the simulation, is that success? No. Um, so the whole purpose of this is to improve our CFD, and if it comes back that our CFD was wrong, that's also success because it shows where we need to improve. I think for our the team right now, considering the difficulties we've had uh, getting it this far, um, success for us is flying and recovery, and um, recovering the data that we can would be a success, even if it's not as much as we originally planned for it.
I think that student project really highlights how instrumentation can be really underestimated, especially in student projects where it's just, you start out with a really cool technical challenge uh, that you want to test and then, oh, we'll just measure the pressures. But then finding ways to get the pressure transducers in the rocket, in the design without impeding its performance is a whole challenge in itself. And I think uh, that the Florida Tech team did a really good job showing how they uh, work through those challenges. Another interesting podium presentation was the Colorado State University uh, Ares 5 uh, bipropellant liquid engine. So they have been producing liquid bipropellant engines for the past few years on their rockets. And last year, um, their Ares 4 rocket had an anomaly during flight. And one of the things they noticed in the data was a huge spike in chamber pressure during engine startup. And they had seen this on the test stand, and they had seen this in the flight data. Uh, They had concluded that the failure in flight was not exactly related to this pressure spike. But when they sat down for the next year to uh, basically choose their senior design project, they identified this problem as something that's going to limit what they can do with their uh, engine design. And so the problem is actually quite interesting. Uh, Rocket engines are very complex, right? Everyone jokes about rocket science. And part of that is while it's possible to model them as steady state systems where you inject fuel and oxidizer, react that, and then expand the resulting combustion gases, the engine has to go from a empty state to the steady state and then shut down all safely and within the strength margins of the material. And so these transition phases tend to be the hardest to account for. An interesting design decision for the CSU rocket is that they have coaxial fuel tanks. So one is actually inside the other, and then both are pressure fed into the engine. And so while using this system, they don't have fine-grained feed pressure control into the combustion chamber. And so they were seeing a huge spike as the fuel rushes into the chamber and immediately reacting and creating this huge spike of high pressure. And so they needed a way to smooth this out by controlling the propellant flow. And so they took an interesting approach and solved this with hydraulics. They built a system where there's actually a hydraulic valve. Well, we actually have a diagram from CSU showing how their hydraulic valve system works. So their solution to this problem was a hydraulic Uh, actuated valve. And so instead of having a straight connection between the two propellant lines, there would be a sliding piece that basically forms a hydraulic piston and a a single outlet line. And so that both pistons would slowly uncover the channel for the propellants to flow, slowly increasing the propellant uh, flow rate while keeping both propellant ratios constant. And using that mechanism, they were actually able to demonstrate that the combustion chamber pressure spike was completely mitigated. And they had a much smoother, less aggressive pressure spike, which would allow them to have a safer flight and a more performant engine. It's another case of an overlooked problem and a really clever solution. Um, And I think that type of thing, that type of project 
is a perfect application for this sort of competition and really one of the highlights of why it's so awesome for students to come and compete. Plus, it's freaking cool. We have some slides from CSU and Florida Tech both up on our blog, so you can check out and visualize the Ramjet and CSU's uh, Valve solution. So another school that we're really excited to meet up with again is North Seattle College. North Seattle College came to the competition with a rocket that utilized a ring fin, which is a unique and novel way to provide aerodynamic control to their vehicle. Another thing that's really interesting is that this is a super small team coming out of a community college, so they don't have the huge backing of funds that some other schools did. And so we met up with them and to see how they had progressed and how their program had matured over time and what kind of engineering challenges and decisions they were making at their third visit to the Spaceport America Cup. Hi guys, so last hey year you guys were a really fun team with a really unique design. What are some improvements or changes you guys made from this year from last year? Well, between last year and this year, we ended up expanding our international wings and <laughs> established a great relationship with a country across the seas. So you could call us collusionists because we are now working with Amir State in Russia to send up one of their payloads. So, yeah, so from last year, we're actually sending up payloads. We intended to send up our own payload and theirs. Um, unfortunately, we had some last-minute milling issues, and uh, so we're sending up a dummy box for us. And we had to size up the motor, since it's now going to be, you know, 64 pounds of, of pure gloriousness in the sky, and had to size up from a 75-millimeter motor to a 98-millimeter. Otherwise, we would have just used last year's fin can and just swapped out the, the ring fin. Is the whole idea about that, and sent it up with uh, changing up the aerodynamics a little. Oh man! <laughs> so we ended up making a. Uh, it's gonna all be spring loaded. The payload deployment system, okay. to where it's uh, it's all going off just uh, tension and pressures. So. So you intend to deploy both of your payloads? Uh, yes. In flight. Okay. Yeah. At so. At Apogee, once it heads up, you know, hopefully around 10,000 feet. If it ends up going like 9,800, then so be it. But uh, yeah, just something we ended up cobbling together. Uh, had the idea straight from the get-go, but then it was putting things back and forth. Oh, yeah, and this is Amir State's payload. Oh, my name's Flash Johnson, by the way. And my, uh, my fellow cohort with us right here is... Martin Cortez. Nice to meet you guys. So, so uh, can you describe the, the payload that uh, you have here? So the payload they sent this, uh, this is Amir State's payload, and it is a, a base prototype that their freshman and sophomore year class is putting together to, in the future, do a CubeSat to collect garbage to help alleviate the potential Kessler effect, and so we can continue to go through low Earth orbit instead of garbage getting everywhere. And so... Right now, we're stress testing a lot of the things that they're implementing. So the frame design, the electronics, and the piston structure that they have, and making sure that it can handle 14 to 16 Gs and continue working. So, so what are the challenges of working with uh, a university that is not only overseas on the other side of the world, basically, but is also um, in Russia? Well, <laughs> we have quite a bit of difficulty with the language barrier because under like unlike the the western side of europe 
Uh, not a whole lot of them learn to speak it fluently. They can understand the Russian wonderfully, but I mean the English just fine. But uh, there's a little bit of a language barrier, and we had to use a lot of Skype. We ended up switching over to Zoom, was it? And that ended up being a lot more stable. And then there were also uh, certain files or certain websites and things we try to share with them that they actually have censored. So, yeah, so like Ezra, so for them even trying to uh, contact IREC and Ezra and register, yeah, that we had to print out and send them all the forms individually. They sent them back to us so that we that way we could send them in. So when we submitted this to the payload competition, we had to do all the submissions for them because they couldn't actually access any of the websites or any of that because it's all taboo. As far as interfaces go, um, how did you manage communicating how their hardware would sync up with your hardware? Well, we ended up having a bit of an issue with that, so their payload won't be communicating directly with our eBay. So we have a different GPS locator with it, and as far as their deployment and when it should start activating, that's where it comes into our pretty much dumbfire deployment system to where it is a deployment plunger that will be depressed, and then as soon as it flies free, there's a three second delay before it all starts activating, which should give it enough time to clear away from our rocket. So, yeah. Can you describe uh, your payload deployment system? All right, so I don't have it put all together That's okay. at the moment, but... <laughs> yeah. Here, go ahead and... Where's our other pressure pads here? Uh, look for it. All right. Moneywho, uh, these studs, we have springs mounted upon them. And so the lower springs have about, have, well not about, they have 44 pounds of pressure. Then we have another spring system between the two payloads, which provides us with 32 pounds of pressure. And then at the top, um, well actually on our aft section, we have another round where it's another uh, 44 pounds of pressure. And then the shear screws have been calculated to be just under that. And when this gets deployed, starts separating, the pressure, there's just a slight difference there and it'll end up popping it. And breaking the screws, we'll, we have a strap that runs from eye bolt to eye bolt that's not attached at the moment. We'll just, we'll do a little uh, sailor jerry rig it and just tie it on. And then, uh, yeah, pops, strap flips it out, just like uh, snapping a belt or something. And that's how it'll deploy. So we just kept it real simple. And yeah, just some basic physics. So there's a low-tech solution to a high-tech future. <laughs> Okay, so we talked to you last year. Yep. Um, you guys were bootstrapping yourselves on a tight budget as well. Yep. Um, what's changed as far as your organization um, since last year, since we last talked to you? Um, since last year, we actually had our president this year. She's on her way right now, but she did an absolute excellent job of being able to get in guest speakers, helping us find mentors and things like that. So we had a lot of interaction with people professionally in the field, folks from NASA, people from Aerojet, people who were actively working on ISS, mission planning and things like that. So that was something that she was able to bring into our rocket club and then share with other North Seattle students and some of the neighboring uh, community colleges in the area, uh, like Edmonds and Seattle South, like some of the other schools near us. So we were able to branch out more with the other clubs who were trying to 
do things too. Um, we also had a pretty decent amount of funding that helped us build up our overall future infrastructure. So a lot of different tools and things that we needed, just basic tools, having cordless power drills that we could swap out, getting tap and die sets, so we didn't have to rely on the individual students having their own tools and bringing them in. So that was two things that we really established differently from last year is just, yeah, more professional people coming in and building an infrastructure for future rocket teams. We, we got to solve our GPS issue because we'll definitely get it up. It's just a matter if we have to uh, use binoculars to get it back. <laughs> so, oh. yeah, I, I completely trust in this thing deploying the recovery system, but uh, the act of recovery might be the tricky bit. But we've uh, learned our lessons in the past um, from our first year competing, which, if you remembered or not, are the whole reason they have the radios. And then from last year competing, why everyone now has this nice little system of having a the safety officer relegated to watch water consumption for their entire team and marks it on the hour. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They actually mentioned both of those things at the conference yesterday. You know, and it's like, wow, we've hit both the lows and the highs in uh, just two years of competing here. So, yippee. Yeah. Leaving a strong legacy behind. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, speaking of legacy, your team is the, your team makeup is a little bit different. But it seems like your team culture has remained the same. So can you talk about how the team has changed over time? Go for it, Martin. Well, I don't know. So I don't know last year team, so I'm new to this, but we had more diverse people now, like people to communicate, share the knowledge to everyone how to do stuff. So that's a pretty good thing. The good thing is we have good chemistry with each other that like each other. Yeah, so right there you were talking with a uh, U.S. Army veteran. So, yeah. Thanks for your service. My, myself, Thank you know, you. <laughs> Merchant Mariner. Uh, we have an accountant who switched over from another portion of life. So what are the big differences between us and other teams? It's just we're all a little older, have a little more experience, and I think that really helps contribute to how well we're able to get along with each other. And even when we start grating with each other a little bit, We've developed some methods to help solve these issues. Yeah. Even if they devolve into like Nerf gun fights. That was a that was a very uh, good way to solve disagreements in the shop is we then just got into a shootout. So and then we arbitrarily decided on who won. It's kinda like whose line anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Where the points don't matter. <laughs> well I like That's the sparkle awesome. paint job. Oh that's good. That's the last setup. minute. Uh, <laughs> decision. It was looking plain and was we were walking around Walmart. We thought it looked really pretty. Freaking awesome man. So we had our overall general plan and then uh, we began the execution of it. And like yeah. any good battle. <laughs> That's usually how it happens. <laughs> so Very yeah. cool. I'm impressed that the that the the Russian payload made it here without like yeah, being customs. Made, yes, yeah. well, exactly. No, didn't you bring it through by hand? No, no, no. no, no. no. We oh. sent it through the DHL. Yeah, yeah. First, yeah. we're taking out of Russia DHL. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad we got to catch up with North Seattle College again. They're really fun to hang out with and, and talk to. I think their project specifically highlights two things. One that their rocket that came back and they only did a few minor changes. They resized a few things to handle a different payload. 
and they identified a couple problems like it was going too slow off the rail last year so they put it in a bigger engine um and the other thing it highlights is how diverse and how uh far reaching this rocket engineering can go and that camaraderie that comes with launching rockets and doing aerospace that reaches across the world and across the teams is just so so inspiring uh and just gets me pumped up for this stuff so tj you and i uh, went to school at the rochester institute of technology and last year we went to the spaceport america cup with rit's team when they were rookies this year they were back at the competition and we didn't really know too many people on the team this year but we could tell that even we could tell the difference that even one year of experience made do you want to talk about some of the things you noticed yeah i think there's so much to take away from being in new mexico for a week surrounded by so many other schools so uh my main takeaway was a lot of the procedures the team had 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 become battle tested, right? They had done a launch in the Rochester area, but they were able to come back in having experienced some of the environmental challenges of launching in New Mexico, as well as the time-based challenges involved of getting your rocket fully set up so that it can be flight approved, but then also having to hurry up and wait for a launch slot. And so, you know, that's a very challenging flow. One thing I, I noticed immediately was on the front end of the rocket, it had like over a dozen removed before flight tags. So they were able to uh, install the rocket on the launch rail and turn everything on because once your flight rocket or once your rocket has been checked in for flight, you're not allowed to take it apart and turn on anything inside of that. So all that had been internalized uh, to make it easier to set up and launch. Another thing was, um, again, being a little bit more efficient, they had way more space to be able to do things under shade, which is a huge help when it's 100 plus degrees. And, you know, last year, I think we talked about how, like, you know, they made some fancy 3D printed uh, launch mount or setup mount, which had PVC pipe and then PLA brackets to make a nice, like, angled a cradle to some of the rocket and in the desert sun those had weakened structurally and, and failed and the rocket kind of fell to the ground you know simple things like just use pvc angle pipes uh would solve that problem so it's really interesting to see the small tweaks and then just overall the team that was there this year was very professional they got things done on time um i think their overall were much less stressed than last year probably a lot less late night 4 a.m. Uh, like rocket surgery going on, um, which is good to see. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a few like technical changes that you saw. Um, and I think what my biggest takeaway was um, that last year they came in and they'd done everything in the safety procedures and stuff that were given to them by Ezra. Like they, they met the minimum requirements that were there with a safe rocket, with a payload that would um, get done safely, go through all the safety checks and be ready to launch. And then this year, they came back and it, it, I felt that they went above and beyond those minimum requirements and kind of added their own procedures on top of it to make sure they themselves as a team were more organized, more practiced, more ready. And um, one example of that was on the outside of their tent, they had a little laminated cards that would um, they would hang up with 
an indicate it was like a sign with an indication of what stage they were in their flight prep so that everybody in the tent would know and other people would know how close they were to flight or when there was a danger area like when they were priming different charges and such so i think that uh was my biggest takeaway that said we did go out and watch them launch and their rocket uh which was a little bit more ambitious this year was aiming to go to a higher altitude um, it failed right they went up and it, it didn't reach its target altitude i'm not sure how many pieces it came down in but uh, i guess the bottom line there is that it's it's still rocketry you know things can go wrong um even if you plan for everything and take steps to be as perfect as you can leading up to the day um whether it was a random failure or another misstep look or the the final steps in their procedure got overlooked in the desert heat and under the pressure who knows uh but it's still rocketry and things can still go wrong exactly you know um i don't know who exactly coined this phrase but scott manley likes to use it it takes a hundred things to go perfectly for a rocket to successfully launch it only takes one thing to go wrong for the whole thing to go up in flames so unfortunately that rocket uh did not survive uh its first flight However, it's a learning experience. I think all the students had a great time over the past year designing and building it. And those experiences will follow them into their next rocket or their projects as interns and full-timers working at other space companies. So let's take a second to look at these trends that we've seen from year to year and look toward the future. TJ. Um, if we go next year to the Spaceport America Cup 2020, where do you see the competition being as far as the professionalism, as far as the skill level and the diversity of the teams competing? Like where, where do you see the, the competition going in just another year? I anticipate the competition expanding and the number of teams and schools uh most likely significantly, as much as the infrastructure at the spaceport can support it. Uh, I think this year, although we saw some failures, we saw a ton of rockets fly, which was awesome. And I think next year, the success rate will probably go down, just because the pool of qualified candidates uh, will be greatly expanded, right? You'll have more first-time teams, or you'll have more teams that might have their... uh, initial rocket and maybe an experimental rocket or a rocket that's pushing the boundaries. And so I think that's going to lead to some interesting flights next year. But again, the competition overall is really exciting. You're going to see a lot of activity in a very small amount of time. It really is, you know, each team kind of competing against the engineering challenge rather than competing against any other team because it's so difficult to design and manufacture these rockets and it's so easy for something to go wrong and the physics and the engineering are going to be much harder barriers than any competitor you might have right you know the way this competition works is that the team has to understand their rocket at a very fine level and simulate its performance and then hopefully the built product 
matches that performance, right? That's how they're scored rather than whoever goes the highest or the fastest. And so I think, you know, no matter how big the competition gets, it's still going to be just as difficult uh, for each individual team in school. I agree with what you just said about um, the scaling of the competition. But I think it's mostly because of this new rule of one rocket per university. I think that is going to drive a lot of different things. So students that came in this year for the first time and next year feeling more ambitious might go from the 10,000 to the 30,000 class, 10,000 foot to the 30,000 foot class, making room for all these other newcomers to fill in that 10,000 foot class. Um, And likewise, students that have a lot of experience with solid rocket motors um, that maybe have a lot more university backing come in here, they put on a great rocket, they launch a great rocket, they come back next year with their experimental hybrid or their rocket that's going to go make an attempt to get past the Von Karman line. And I I think when the students get more ambitious, it makes room for the newcomers and having this one rocket per school leaves that void and leaves that room for the competition as a whole to expand rather than the school's doing all of them in kind of one very uh, one school with a lot of history making the same claim toward all of these competitions at once. I think that's really, really critical. And I, th- I think it's great. Um, I also wanted to say that I am really, really looking forward to more attempts at those high altitude experimental rockets. Um, especially with student teams like the USC team already making these attempts, you know, all these other students see that, right? And USC just launched in May, 12 months from now, those other students, like they, if they see it now in the next year, they'll have the time to work on it, refine it and make their own attempts. So I, I think it's only going to get better. Um, and uh, it's going to be a whole lot of fun. So congratulations to the University of Washington, which was the team that won the competition overall at the Spaceport America Cup 2019. And for a list of all of the winners and all the different classes, you can check out our blog post that'll go along with this episode at blog.spexcast.com. But before we close out the show, I'd like to talk about our trip there, which was awesome, going out to Las Cruces, New Mexico and Alamogordo and the White Sands Missile Range which was freaking cool. So what is the White Sands Missile Test Range? So White Sands Missile Range is basically this giant desert in the middle of nowhere where it's surrounded by mountains and there's nothing. It's completely flat inside and it's the perfect military base for testing weapons. Uh, That's where the United States military tests out different weapons like missiles, different guns for Navy ships. They've actually got a ship called the Desert Ship, which has guns mounted and like a land-based ship for testing. Um... And back in the Cold War, it saw some uh, nuclear weapons testing. But there's areas like the White Sands Mushroom Range Museum and Rocket Garden where private citizens can go and check out uh, all these different rockets put up on display. So me and UTJ, we uh, went out and we touched some of these rockets. Up in Alamogordo, they have an F-1 engine that powered the Saturn V just sitting out there in the sun. And we stuck our heads in the... Uh, combustion chamber and touched all the valves and pipes and it was just crazy oh it was awesome so you know if you've been to Cape Canaveral 
uh, their rocket garden or even in Huntsville, Alabama, you're going to see very large rockets, right? These are designed to launch spacecraft into orbit or interplanetary probes and also human spaceflight. And none of those payloads are what you consider small. But at White Sands, the focus is a little bit more towards military missiles. It is an army base after all. And what you can see is the rapid evolution in missile technology and rocket technology from the 1940s all the way up to present day. Um, you know, White Sands was the place where uh, captured Nazi scientists went with uh, captured V2 rockets and where V2s were originally tested. And so using that technology, they were able to refine that, iterate that, you know, the Redstone rocket came from V2 heritage and also scaling that technology down as something that could be launched from an airplane or something that could be launched from the ground to hit enemy uh, bombers and fighters and things like that. And so it's really interesting to see the variety of shapes and also the interesting engineering and vehicles that were required to support that. You know, there's a whole section working on drones uh, to act as targets you can test your anti-air missiles against. Uh, They had an autonomous uh, helicopter that they've been using for decades, uh, either as a target itself or to uh, carry other targets uh, for testing, as well as uh, jet-powered and rocket-powered target drones. And they showed the the iteration from, well, this was our our first propeller-driven drone to a jet-powered drone, and then we needed to test against supersonic targets, so we have this new design. And so you can really see some very, a lot of hard engineering work. And one the, the really interesting part that stood out was that there's a section that's kind of like a, a memorial of some sorts to the engineers and scientists who worked at the base. And so there's this brick area where individuals and families had put uh, kind of monuments to their work there of, I worked on, you know, the... Patriot missile program from the for these 20 years and it has that person's name and so there's all this history of people who spent their entire careers designing and building missiles and rockets there at White Sands uh, who had seen the evolution of the program from the very early days where they're just figuring out how to get something to fly to refining it into the generally safe generally reliable uh, missiles and rockets we use today. Yeah. Um, I Like you said, I thought it was interesting because all these rockets that are out on display have the uh, a little blurb about the history of the design, how they were used, and then the years that they were first fired and retired from service. And it was cool to see uh, those engineers' careers overlap uh, the rockets that you could see with your own eyes and see how it went from uh, something small and very similar to the unguided student rockets that uh, we saw at the competition go all the way up through the super advanced, um, extremely uh, like long range, extremely precise missiles that are still used today. Um, One thing that I thought was super interesting too was the engineering that goes into the actual infrastructure to test these missiles and uh, you know, have quantitative measurements of how they performed. So there were two things that were really cool. One was a high-speed 35-millimeter film camera mounted on a Navy gun mount 
that was used to track these missiles as they went through the sky. Um, it was called Igor. Uh, we've got a picture of it on the blog. Um, and then another thing that was really cool were these rocket sleds where they would mount a rocket sideways or um, like a dummy just shape sideways. And the whole rack would go supersonic speeds across a rail system in order to take measurements or test things without shooting it into the air. Another interesting artifact was one of the original uh, tracking radars used in White Sands. It was actually built off of designs developed in Nazi Germany. The rocket would send a carrier wave that would be picked up by this helical antenna that's literally wire bolted onto a wooden frame. You know, it doesn't look like a high-tech device, but by using the basically the Doppler shift of the radio wave, they're able to finally track the position and trajectory of the rockets. But the one thing that was really interesting is that it wasn't real time. They're recording this data as a literal uh, sound signal coming off of this antenna, and then they would have to convert that recorded signal into... Uh, trajectory and that could take up to six weeks and so we kind of take it from granted that we can watch a live stream of a rocket launch with real-time trajectory and real-time speed and altitude when in the early days you would do a test and it would take over a month to get any useful data back from it yeah it was just an amazing experience up in alamogordo there's the new mexico space history museum um, which has a lot of artifacts from uh you know gemini up to apollo um, and more. To, to bring it back home to Spaceport America, it's really kind of humbling to see the history of rocket engineering and then appreciate how, as a freshman at a, at a certain university, you could come to an event like this, have an active role, and actually do real engineering onto a rocket and launch it and recover it and take those lessons back and have that play back into your growth as an engineer. And even as a spectator, we can come and talk to these students and learn a lot um, about engineering. It's just, yeah, it's really awesome. <laughs> yes, it was. Also, the New Mexico Space Museum has an F1 engine just outside and like, you can touch it. It's pretty cool. Twice a year, they open up the Trinity site, which is the first site of an atomic bomb in the United States. And you can go and visit as a private citizen. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we have more pictures of our trip to White Sands Missile Range and Spaceport America up on our blog. And at the Spaceport America Cup, we had the opportunity to meet a lot of really interesting people. Um, one of them being Manfred Schreier, who's a photographer. He took photos of the event. You can check out some of his photography at mirageartphotography.com. And a special thanks to the Spaceport America staff, the staff and volunteers of the Experimental Sounding Rocket Association, the student members of all the teams that competed at the Spaceport America Cup, and the state of New Mexico for giving us grand old time. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to future ones on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecraft and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry on our website, blog.spexcast.com. And let us know what you think of the show. Uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast service, and reach out to us directly at Spexcast, or send an email to spexcast at gmail.com. And who knows, we might read your message on the air. 
our music is by Nelson Scott. <laughs>